This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, Show 82. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Brandon Turner. What's up, Brandon? Not much. How are you doing, Josh? I am doing really good, man. I'm doing really good sitting here in gloomy Seattle. Oh, no, this is Denver. I just got confused. I thought I was... (laughs) Nice. Hey, I have another serious question. Last week I asked you about your favorite movie, but today I actually have a real serious question. Okay, what is it? All right, so I want to know, you got stranded on a desert island you're, yes. for the rest of your life, and you can only bring with one album and a CD player. You got a little headset, you know, a bunch of batteries, <laughs> and one music album to listen to for the rest of your life. What is that oh, album? Oh my goodness, I don't have a clue. You got, you, that's not an answer. Oh man, I, that, that's... Top of your head, what do you bring? I would do Exit Stage Left from Rush. Never even listened to that. You've never heard Rush? Oh, I've heard Rush. I've never listened to the album. It's one of their live albums. It was like one of my favorite albums that I, it was a cassette tape that I used to have. And for those of you listening who don't know what that is, you can Google it. But uh, yeah, I I used to have that as as a tape and I think I broke it, you know, one time, got a new one, broke it again from listening to it so many times. But yeah, probably that one. How about yourself? Good call. Um, Oh, good question. There was an old ska band called uh, the OC Supertones. I'm going to go with uh, Loud and Clear, OC Supertones, year 2000. Wow. That there was you have it. very instrumental in my uh, teen years. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. All right. All right. Moving we, on. Well, yes. Today we have, uh, we got a cool show. We got a guy who has been around a long time. Won't quite tell us how long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really want to know how old he is. Oh, man. I was, he's not uh, that old. People are going to think he's like old. 100 years old, but no, he's <laughs> He's just like a middle-aged guy, but Josh yeah, was uh, giving him uh, crap on the show. So, Oh, you know, if I don't give <laughs> people crap, what fun is it? Yeah. No, he's a great guy. David Krulak. David's been around uh, Bigger Pockets for a while. And, you know, he's he's a super experienced guy that's uh, really great at giving out advice on the site and has a ton of wisdom to share. And, and today we dig into his background a little bit and talk about some interesting topics uh, and, and strategies. So, Definitely pay attention. Before we uh, get into Dave, uh, let's talk about today's quick Quick tip. tip. All right. Today's quick tip. Uh, We've kind of mentioned this before, but I wanted to rehash it. If you're not meeting with local people in your area, you're really missing out because Bigger Pockets obviously is an online thing, but you really should be meeting with local people. So my quick tip today is find people in your local area. Just go to biggerpockets.com slash meet and you can search people in your zip code, which ties nicely into our Pro benefit of the week. Pro benefit of the week. <laughs> is, is that a new thing? <laughs> I don't know. And uh, that is, if you are a pro, uh, you can actually go to slash meet and search any zip code. So do that. And that means you can search within 50 miles of you, within 25 miles of you, within 100 miles of you, or go search a random zip code in Florida or something if you really cared. So anyway, check those out. And uh, last thing before we actually... Uh, oh, I should probably mention, if you want to upgrade to pro, go to biggerpockets.com slash get pro, G-E-T-P-R-O. 
Make sure you go there and check out the video that me and Josh made there. I think <laughs> you'll enjoy it. So check that out. Uh, biggerpockets.com slash get pro. And I do want to add to your networking locally. You know, people around BP have been setting up local organic meetups. There's also real estate clubs around the country. There's RIA's National RIA has all these uh, local real estate clubs and things. So yeah, there's there's tons of different ways to find uh, real estate investment groups, and uh, we definitely encourage you check them all out. All right, so today we've got David Krulak, who I mentioned before. He's an investor and real estate broker from the Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania area. That is central Pennsylvania near Harrisburg, I believe. And David has bought and sold over 800 properties. In 2013, he bought. 23 properties and sold 23 properties, all within his own personal portfolio. Uh, he has personally been involved in several different kinds of real estate transactions and brings lots of wisdom. So I certainly encourage you to listen to the show and, of course, network with him on Bigger Pockets uh, when you're done listening. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day, plus Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at slash pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's 
R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of rent ready for $1, which is crazy. So let's get to this. All right, David, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Josh, Brandon. It's, this is great. Awesome. Awesome. We're glad to have you. Um, Absolutely. Da- yeah, David actually was one of our authors on our uh, community book that we wrote. Not we, because I didn't write it. But uh, we had, uh, what, eight or nine or ten different writers write a-, a chapter each in a book we called Real Estate Rewind. And it was yep. like, what would you do different if you were starting over today? Kind of a getting started book. And it's free for Bigger Pockets members uh, in the file place at biggerpockets.com slash files. And I will actually point to the individual file in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 82. But your chapter was awesome. And so hopefully people will go check that out because it is free. So it was a fun chapter to write. I was, I was glad to be asked to do it. Well, cool. Cool. Uh, well, today we want to actually kind of go back and, and kind of talk on that stuff a little bit, but not so much of what would you do, but what did you do? And so we're going to start, you know, square one way back. I don't know how long you've been in this. So we'll get there. What did you do before real estate and how'd you get into this game? Believe it or not, I, I worked uh, doing computer design. Really? Which is, which is a believe it or not, because I'm not very tech savvy <laughs> and I've been out of it so long that the industry has passed me by. So you're talking about actually designing the hardware that is a computer? Software. Oh, software design. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Gotcha. So, All right, so, so you're a hot guy in, in the software design space and... So in antiquities. In antiquities, maybe <laughs> 10, 20. I'm not going to age you, so I'll let you do it to yourself. <laughs> so at some point, it came to your head. You're like, all right, I'm doing this. I want to go into real estate. Or what was the uh, genesis? I started when I was still working full-time, no, not in real estate. And I thought that I needed to do something as a uh, hedge for retirement. So initially, I got into it with the idea that it would be a supplement to my retirement. And it kind of grew from there and grew to the point where I stopped doing that and I'm doing real estate investing full time now. So I I am going to ask you about your age because I think it's pertinent. And I think, you know, some folks who are listening may find it relevant. So you're you're clearly not in your 20s or 30s or 40s. I'll I'll stop there. When, when, when 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 you decided to start making a hedge for retirement. Were, how, were you really close to retirement? Oh, no. This, this was when I first started working. Okay. Uh, I was only on the job nine months. Oh, wow. so you and started I back my first in the property. Day. Gotcha. So, so it was a long time ago. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. You're, well, you're planning ahead of time then. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that first property. I mean, what was the first deal? It was kind of unusual. I looked at a whole bunch of properties. I couldn't find anything that I liked or could afford. Uh, a coworker told me, that there was going to be an auction of a house on his street. And I went and looked at the house. It was better than anything else I looked at. And uh, it was being auctioned by the state highway department. They had bought uh, several houses to put in an interchange off a limited access four-lane highway. And the people that lived in the subdivision protested because the exit was going to go right into the middle of the subdivision. Hmm. So they redesigned the interchange to skirt the perimeter of the subdivision, and they ended up with these extra houses. They rented them for seven years, uh, the state did, at um, very below market rents. Then they needed an act of the legislature and a signature of the governor uh, and pass a law in order to sell these properties, which was considered (laughs) excess state properties. 
And uh, so I went to the auction. The terms of the auction were uh, 10% deposit the day of the sale, uh, settle in 30 days. I had never been to an auction before. I'd never bought any real estate before. I went to this auction. I borrowed money from my parents, uh, $2,500 as my 10% deposit. And I bid up to $25,000. There was a real estate broker that was there. He bid me up. I ended up getting the property at $27,000. I didn't have enough money for the deposit. I had to borrow more money from somebody else just to make the deposit. <laughs> the guy next to you at the auction. It was a friend of mine who came to, to uh, the auction with me just out of curiosity. He didn't know that it was going to cost him money. <laughs> <laughs> so I signed the contract to uh, buy this house, settle in 30 days. I talked to my landlord where I was renting an apartment and uh, got out of my lease in 45 days. Well, what happened, though, was we never settled in 30 days. I went over to the attorney general's office to this meet with this deputy attorney general who's handling the sale. And I said, uh, I'm going to be homeless. They've already re-rented my apartment. We haven't settled on this house in 30 days like I was anticipating. Is there any possibility that I could move into this house before settlement? And he said, oh, no, we can't do that. We don't have any insurance on the property. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not a problem. I already got an insurance policy because I was expecting to settle within 30 days. He said if I gave him documentation of that, they'd give me the keys. So I, I gave him the binder from the insurance policy. They gave me the keys and I moved in. Nice. Throughout that whole discussion, we never discussed rent. He never <laughs> brought it up. I never brought it up. <laughs> You know, I kind of thought that we were going to be settling within a few days. I didn't, I didn't think rent was going to be an issue. And in addition to that, they were paying for the sewer and the trash, and it was during the summer. They were also paying for lawn service. So I moved into this house. Uh, I wasn't paying any rent. I wasn't paying any mortgage payment. Plus, I got a roommate to move in and pay me rent. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up that we didn't settle for six months. Oh, jeez. Wow. So I lived there for free for six months, plus I collected rent and had to pay some of the utilities, but not all the utilities. It was right then I decided this real estate's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So so that was your became your primary home, and you're kind of acting somewhat like Brandon's favorite strategy, which is you know, move into a duplex, rent out the other side. In this case, you're you're subsidizing your own uh, primary residence, a single family with a roommate. Same, yeah, same I had several roommates over the years. I lived there for a few years, and then I kept that property as a rental property and owned it for a very long time. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So you got the bug, and what happened from there? Uh, the next property I got uh, was also word of mouth. It was a co-worker of my wife. Their grandmother had passed away and owned a multi-unit. And it wasn't advertised. It wasn't listed. There was no sign on the property. I ended up buying that property. And uh, I still own that property today. Wow. And I just kept buying more and more properties over the years. So looking back on your experience when you first got started, do you have any good advice for people uh, who might be just getting started that are listening to this podcast right now? Like, Is there anything you did right or you did wrong when you were getting uh, first involved in this? For me, financing was the big key. I really didn't have any money. Uh, you know, I just started this job. It was an entry-level job, and I didn't have any savings. 
so financing was the key. If I hadn't been able to get financing, I wouldn't have been able to buy any of those properties or any of the subsequent properties either. So financing was a big key. One of the things is I joined a credit union early on, and they had a $10,000 signature loan with no collateral. And I borrowed that multiple times. I've, I've used that for down payments and rehab money, and I've paid it back and borrowed it again. It, it was a good source of, of money for me, and it was really easy. Once it was set up, all I had to do was go to the teller. It was like making a withdrawal from your own account. Nice. So is that what you used on the initial properties? I mean, you borrowed the uh, 10% on that first one from your folks. How did you get the, the first uh, couple deals financed? The first property was 90% bank financing okay, and uh, 10% from my parents. The second property was a little bit more than 90% bank financing. Uh, ended up being from another bank. Okay. On that property, there, there was something that kind of a quirky in the whole thing too. I went to the first bank to get the mortgage for the second property and they turned me down because the property was old. It's, it's like 100 years old. And it needed some work. You know, there was some deferred maintenance. So uh, the executor of the state recommended that I go to his bank, which was his, his mother's bank, the, who was the late owner. And so I went there on his recommendation and talked to his contact there at the bank. And uh, I wasn't able to get the mortgage approved until after the 30 days that the contract required for mortgage approval. So I was planning on walking away from the deal. They had changed the terms. They wanted more down. They wanted a higher interest rate. We ended up negotiating the price lower after I had a mortgage commitment. And I figured that since the bank guy was his friend, that he was going to inform his friend of what we had done. We went to settlement. The bank guy came to settlement, and he didn't know what the purchase price was. Oh, no. And... At settlement, the, the executor of the estate's there, I'm there, the attorney's there, and this bank guy's there, and he's going, well, what is the price of the property? And we both told him, and he said, well, you've changed the terms of the contract. We don't have to give you this mortgage. Well, if he didn't give the mortgage, then I couldn't buy the property, and you know, he'd kind of um, you know, piss off his, his friend <laughs> and his client. So he did give her the mortgage. Well, it really made a big impression on this bank guy. I saw him like 10 years later at the mall, and he said hi to me, and he said, you know, we didn't have to give you that mortgage. <laughs> nice. Like 10 years later. I mean, he'll hold that over you for the rest of your life. This for the last 10 years. Jeez, man. Jeez. All right. So so that second property, you bought it from this family, and it was a multi-unit. Was it, was it eight units, did you say? I'm sorry. It was three units. It was three units. Okay. And I ended up buying the building next door, which was two units. So I have five units that are like right together. Okay. So... Now you're starting to stack things up and you, you know you're you're not just renting out to to your buddies who are living in the next room you're renting out to actual tenants. How does that go for you? You know and and how do you start learning the process of dealing with all that and writing contracts and getting it all together? I'm guessing you probably learned a little bit of trial by fire and sure. and so you know sh- share a little bit of that with us and you know give us maybe some of your your best uh, tips for other folks who might do the same. Well, one of the things that happened on the multi was we ended up, we were settling in January, which is cold around these parts of the country. Yep. And the 
the one unit was vacant because the owner was deceased, but the other units were rented to the adult children of the former owner. And I was told that they were going to stay on as tenants. Well, the day of settlement, I went for the pre-settlement walkthrough and they were all gone. And the whole building was empty and it was in January and had oil heat and there was like a drop of oil left in the oil tank. I, I needed to call the oil company you know, and have an emergency deliver of oil just to keep the building heated. And I, you know, I made a mistake because I didn't have it in writing that the tenants were going to be staying. You know, I just had this verbal, oh, the tenants are going to stay. Right. Well, then when it came to settlement, they weren't there. They didn't stay. Yep. So I got the building. It was totally vacant, which, you no know, hindsight, I like picking my own tenants rather than getting inherited tenants. But in that particular case, at that particular time in my investing career, it would have been nice to have some paying tenants in January when it's you no know, zero degrees. Yep. Yep. So, you know, obviously to any new investors, Filling vacancies in the middle of the winter is not as easy as, as it is in the summer. Uh, summer is certainly a better time to to find folks. What did you end up having to do to, to fill it? And as now somebody who's been experienced, who's been in the game for a while, uh, do you have any feedback or advice for folks who do need to look for folks in the middle of the winter? What I ended up doing on that property was I took the opportunity of them being vacant to update them and improve them before I rented them. So I didn't rent them immediately. Uh, we ended up uh, separating the heat, so each of the tenant paid for their own heat. We put in some new furnaces. Uh, we separated the electric, so the tenants would pay their own electric. Uh, we did extensive plumbing updates to the, the building, so we didn't rent it immediately. In subsequent, where I've bought in multi-units with tenants existing, I've always asked for the leases and no other documentation and information that I didn't ask for on that first property. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you're talking about when you're purchasing a property from somebody else, you want to make sure and go through and check out the tenants and make sure everything's on the up and up with the folks that you might be acquiring. I'd like to see, you know, not only leases, but if they have credit checks for the tenants or any other documentation and maybe even talk to the tenants. Yeah. Yeah. So have you found yourself, because I, I, and I can't remember which show we we talked about this, but uh, we we have covered this a little bit in the past on the podcast. When you know, if you inherit a really bad tenant, you can find yourself you know in some trouble. So clearly, you want to make sure that you don't end up taking on a bad tenant at the onset, right? So what do you do as somebody who finds a property that's fantastic? The numbers are great, and you're you're going through the paperwork, and turns out that. You know, the, the other landlord's kind of getting pushed around by a, a, a troubled tenant, which is probably why they're dumping it. And you end up in a situation where you really want the property, but there's some real crap tenants in there before, uh, you know, well, currently, I guess. It seems to me, that in my experience, that a lot of the places where you have some bad tenants, they also don't have leases. A lot of them are, are working, you know, on verbal agreements or month to month or something like that. Gotcha. Here... Uh, if somebody's on month to month or they're on verbal, which is an implied month to month, you can get them out on 30 days notice without even an eviction. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of works out that usually in that kind of situation, the people aren't locked into long term leases. Un unless, of course, you're dealing with somebody who's a professional tenant that may not be uh, locked in, but might cause you a lot of problems regardless. 
Oh, yeah. I, I've gone through evictions. I haven't had uh, any evictions this year, but I had two last year. Yeah. If the situation gets bad enough, you have to do what you have to do. Of course. Of I course. tend to, I actually do all of my, all of my rentals right now are month to month. I think I've said that before on the, on the podcast, but everything I have is, is month to month. And the reason why I read a, a book or a blog post back when I was getting started that mentioned, you know, a, a year lease only binds, at least with his low income tenants, a year lease only binds the landlord because the tenant will leave no matter what, because they don't care. And uh, that was the kind of philosophy I had. Um, I might be changing that now as I get a little bit nicer rental properties, you know, I'm tired of people moving out after four or five months. I think they might anyway. But the, the benefit, of course, is is you can ask people to leave. In in Washington State, we got to give them a 20-day notice, I think it is, maybe 30. But you give them a month notice to leave, and they leave. And so 75% of our bad tenants, we just asked to leave. We just asked some crazy lady last month to leave, and she left. And uh, didn't have to do an eviction on her, which I knew was inevitable. You can kind of tell when people are going down that path. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, that might help some people. I don't know. But do you find for yourself a lot doing of more people, or less? For a lot of people, you know, one bump on the road can cause a big problem. You know, the transmission goes out in their car, and you know, that just upsets their total, you know, financial situation. Yeah, uh, you know that they don't have any savings to have a major expenditure. Most of my tenants are on year leases. I seldom do month to month, and I just rented a place where I signed a new tenant for three years. Nice at a discount of 25% off the market rent. Interesting. And wh- a- why, why did we take such a big cut for that three years? It's a distance from where I live. So the idea was that this is kind of like a tenant self-management program. Yeah. <laughs> they take care of all the, the maintenance. This is a single family house. They take care of all the maintenance. They take, you know, cutting the grass, shoveling the snow, minor maintenance. They take care of all the utilities and I just bought the property. I got it at a, a really low price. And so the rent is still a great return for me, even though it's a discount off of what the market rent is. Nice. I didn't, I didn't clean or paint it or anything. Nice. The, the tenant took it as is, and the tenant cleaned and painted it and did you know, some minor repairs. So in your mind, then you're thinking that it'll, you know, the, the discount for having the stability for three years and not having to do anything, any work into it is, is worth your time. It makes sense. Uh, I've never done, I've never quite done that before. And I know some people have problems with having tenants do work, uh, but you know, it depends on how much it is. And you know, if they're sitting there working on the electrical panel, <laughs> I'm sure that's not kosher, but you know, if they're painting a bedroom. Did you just drop kosher? Of course I dropped kosher. All right. <laughs> I've got a good influence. There you go. There you uh, go. All right. So, so going back to, I guess we never even touched on this question. We probably should ask this. What is your bread and butter now? I mean, what exactly? You obviously are a landlord. We've talked about that. Is that all you do? Oh, no. Okay. So, what, what do you do? Like, maybe give us a 30,000 foot overview of, of David Krulak. I'm doing buy and hold, and I have a bunch of tenants, but I also buy property, uh, fix and flip. Uh, I do land subdivision. Uh, I do tax sales. I do sheriff sales. I do HUDs, you no know, other REOs. And I'm also a real estate broker and I own my own company and I do work for clients who are buyers or sellers also. Okay. okay. And I, I know we probably want to touch on that a little bit later. I got it in my notes to ask you more about that. But uh, maybe first is, do you have an estimate on how many, like in your career now, how many deals have you done? I'm assuming you're full time, I'm sure, right? Like you're a real yes. estate. So how many deals have you done in your life, do you think? I've bought and sold over 800 properties. Woo! Gotcha. That, that so, is so you're pretty new at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just started. <laughs> Last year, um, I bought 23 and sold 23, but not the same 23. Gotcha. Nice. 
So you, someone asked this question, what, what makes you buy a property versus sell a property? I mean, like, why did you choose to sell those 23? I was, I was going to go there on the sales thing. Yeah. A couple of the properties that I sold last year were condos that were restrictive on renting. In both of those condo developments, uh, they only allowed 10% rentals and they already were at the 10% level. Uh, both of those I bought were REOs. One needed hardly any work. I, cleaned and painted. We didn't even change out any of the floor coverings. I have a really good carpet cleaner guy. He came in and cleaned the carpets. There was a red stain in the living room that I figured was red wine. He was able to get it totally removed and sold both of those to owner occupants. So the condo restrictions weren't conducive to renting and uh, the properties were in good condition and they're relatively easy to sell. So that's, that's two of the ones that I sold. Another one that I sold that I bought as an REO last year, it wasn't in a bad neighborhood, but it looked like some of the badness was heading in that direction. Yep. And that one also didn't need very much work. We cleaned the carpets and painted it and put it back on the market and resold it. And we sold it to an investor who was going to rent it out, but it was not a property that I really wanted to rent out. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So Brandon asked why you sold and you know, you've talked about three of them, but I, I think it's one of the fundamental questions that most investors face and find themselves, I think, unless they're in trouble, that's probably the hardest decision that you can make as an investor, unless you go in deciding that you're gonna flip it or go in deciding you're gonna wholesale. You know, you're a buy and hold guy. When do I get rid of this thing? When do I dump it? When do I turn it? Uh, take a guy like Brandon, he's got, I don't know, fifty something units. You know, is it time for Brandon? to start selling those 50 units, those SFRs and the small multis and go and start putting his energy into bigger multiplexes. You know, those are the questions that I think a lot of new and experienced investors face. And so I, I'm curious just on your philosophy above and beyond these particular examples, because, you know, you just got a great deal and you couldn't rent it. So you sold it or there was another circumstance. But, you know, when you sell your long-term properties, what's a trigger for that? Well, let me go back to the, the previous question, too. Since I'm in land development, I'm doing subdivision work. All those properties are properties for resale. You know, I'm doing a subdivision. I'm not going to build 36 houses for myself on the subdivision. Well, you know, so those are that all, might be fun, but yeah. <laughs> those are all properties that from the get-go were geared to be properties that were going to be resold. No, I wasn't going to build any houses there. As far as my rental inventory, I like to evaluate the inventory at the end of the year, like when I'm preparing for taxes. And the properties that are underperforming give me a rationale to liquidate them. Every year I want to go through that thinning the herd process where I get rid of the worst performers and keep the best performer. And I want to do that every year. So I'm always buying property, but I'm also getting rid of the ones that don't measure up. Gotcha. Gotcha. And for one reason or another. That makes sense. Is there a percentage or is there a, um, a line that you set, for example, that says, you know, hey, I want each of these properties to meet, you know, X percent ROI or cash flow number. And if it dips below that number or that percentage, then you consider unloading it? The financials are a consideration, but there's also con other considerations in uh, thinning the herd. One could be the location. Okay. Uh, I had two properties that were in one town, and that was the only properties I had in that one town. 
I decided I didn't want to be in that town anymore. Nothing against that town. It was just its distance from where I was. Gotcha. Uh, I wanted stuff that was closer. The other thing that I also consider is uh, age of the property. Uh, We have a lot of old properties around here. I had a multi-unit that was built in 1890. Mm. I sold that and I did a 1031 and I bought uh, units that were built in 1996 and 1994. So I traded up a century. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a great consideration. Definitely. For those who people who don't know, what is a 1031 exchange? I don't know if we've ever really covered that in depth on the podcast. I've been doing 1031 exchanges for quite a long time. Yeah. What does that even mean? Um, And it's uh, section 1031 is provision of the IRS code that allows you to trade like-kind properties and defer the gains to some later date uh, by you know, meeting all these rules. You have to identify the property in 45 days. You have to settle in 180 days, and uh, you can't touch the proceeds. The proceeds have to go from the relinquished property to the acquired property. So what does that mean? Like uh, you said exchange like kind. Does that mean like a single family for single family? And are you trading no. or are you buying and selling? It's buying and selling. I've never done a direct trade where I got property B from one person and they got property A from me. Yeah. There's always It's always been a three-legged exchange where I sold a property and uh, then bought another property. And the like kind is any investment real estate. So it would apply virtually to any real estate except your personal residence or a personal vacation home. You could trade a vacant lot for an apartment building, or you could trade a single family for an apartment building, or you could trade a gas station for a storefront or you know, whatever. As long as it's an investment, uh, it's good to do. And, and David, just to clarify, so if somebody has a property that they sell for $100,000, can they 1031 into a $150,000 property and add cash to it? And then the second is, can they 1031 into a cheaper property? Yeah, they can do both. You can add to it and you can buy multiple properties too. It's not one for one. If you had a small property, you could be trading up to a larger property. Or if you had a large property and you were winding down, you could trade into smaller properties. If you end up getting cash, the IRS calls that boot, then that portion of cash that you get is taxable. So that would be like a partial exchange where part of it would be deferred and the other part would you be paying taxes on. Yep. Well, let me ask you this. And let's say I have a property that's worth, you know, let's say $500,000 and I sell it for a million and I make $500,000. Why should I 1031 exchange and buy something else versus just pay the taxes and, and go? I mean, obviously you're deferring the taxes, but you still have to pay them eventually, right? How, how does that all work? And, well, and really quick before you answer that, you are, <laughs> David is not a CPA. And, That's correct. So we are asking him questions that are probably best asked to a CPA. So anyone, anyone listening, you know, just keep that in consideration. And if you have higher level questions and are actually looking at jumping in and doing a 1031, you definitely want to talk to your CPA. Yeah, you don't want to break the rules on these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But. So uh, back to David. So this is for entertainment purposes. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's valuable stuff that'll at least kind of help people better understand it. If you have a gain of 500000 like Brandon was referencing, the capital gains tax, even long term, is going to be like 20%. 
So 20% of 500,000 would be, you'd be writing a check to the IRS for $100,000. If you defer that, that's just additional money that you get to keep into the deal and, and possibly buy a bigger property. So you defer it and you can, you can do repeated 1031s exchange so you can keep on deferring it. And there's another provision in the IRS code called stepped up basis that when you die, all that accumulated uh, stepped up basis uh, essentially goes to zero and you don't have to pay any taxes at all. So once you die, I know, you're, I know Brandon, you're not thinking about dying, <laughs> but if you do serial 1031 exchanges and then pass away, your kids don't pay for your all kids those. don't have to pay that capital gains tax that you've been deferring all that year. It gets wiped out. That's fascinating. There you go. There so I was I was wondered that a little bit because I you know I, I've always believed that 1031 exchanges are obviously powerful things, but I thought well someday when I either I get 60 years old, 70 years old, and I want to retire, or when I die, I don't want my kids to all of a sudden be like, oh by the way you have a three million dollar bill well, yeah to the exactly IRS it. you know happy birthday you know like, <laughs> <laughs> that's not you know so okay that makes sense that that and again like you you know. That's something to talk about at CPA about the details with. But I don't know. I think that's fascinating. I always looked at it as I always called it like the IRS is like, hey, this guy is successful. We want to partner with him. It's kind of like the IRS's way of of partnering. Like, hey, you can keep our $100,000 that you owe us and, you know, roll into your next property. And someday we'll make more money than we would originally. Is that kind of their their game, David? Like, is that, that why they do it? It's because they want to make more money in the long run? Why the IRS does that? Yeah. Why would the IRS do that? I think it was a provision written into law to encourage investment. You know, if the taxes are collected every time you have a sale, uh, it's going to reduce the money that's going back into the economy and back into investment. So I think that it's it's an economy stimulation. Yeah. So, you know, I looked into 1031 years ago and tried to execute on a 1031 and was never successful uh, be, because it's not easy. It's not easy finding finding a property that's suitable uh, in the time frame that's allotted, depending upon the circumstances, could certainly be a challenge, can it? It's, it's an extreme challenge, and you don't know how fast forty five days goes for the identification <laughs> period until you're actually in one of these, and you're looking for a really good deal. Well, sometimes maybe in 45 days, you can't find a really good deal. Right. So what I've seen in other examples of people doing 1031s is they 1031 out of a really good investment and then they buy a so-so replacement yeah. because the time frame was there and they had to do something within that time frame. Right, right. So you know, ultimately, you're left with the choice of, you know, am I going to eat the gains on this sucker and, you know, end up paying the bill or maybe you're lucky and you've got, you know, uh, losses from, from the market crash or housing crash or something else. And, you know, it's, it's a wash. So you don't care and you just kind of move on. Right. Right. And it's, it's complicated to do. And, you know, like you said, you should be doing it with the advice of, of your CPA and attorney and yep. have them tell you all the details to that. And you can even get it more complicated if you combine it with the 500,000 exemption for capital gains on your personal residence, that you buy a property, rent it out for a period of years, and then turn it into your personal residence, you can get the benefit of both the 1031 exchange and 
the five hundred thousand tax free on personal residence. Don't go crazy, David. Yeah. I mean, this is, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting cool real strategy. crazy here. <laughs> so, so here, here, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. But this, this is what my thought is: is so in in human history of real estate investors, all thousands of years of people doing this game. I tend to think bigger pockets right now is probably in a position that nobody else has ever been in, in that organizing investors. So here's what I want to know out loud. Maybe there's a fancy, you know, attorney out there, but how do we get the IRS to change the stupid 45 day rule to a six month rule or a year rule, right? Because it's the same thing to them. Why do they push us to buy a bad investment? It's probably because of the people who wrote it and that continue to write, you know, these rules and stuff. I mean, they're like, well, I bought my house in 45 days. Why can't they buy an apartment building in that? Like, why can't they identify an apartment deal in that time? So I don't know. I, w- I wonder out loud, like, how do we as an industry change that rule, which seems a little silly to well, I'd even go um, bigger than that, Brandon. In February, we went to uh, Turks and Caicos and they have no capital gains tax there and no income tax and no inheritance tax and no real estate taxes. Wow. <laughs> um, and if you think about capital gains tax, particularly if you've owned the property for a long time, that first property that I bought from the highway department. I owned for 24 years before I sold it. The capital gains tax, a lot of that is just inflation. The longer you own the property, the more that the tax is on inflation. And I would like to see the capital gains tax index for inflation so that all that build up on inflation, you don't have to pay any tax on. You only would pay the tax on the real gain after inflation. Yeah. I got to tell you, that might be one of the... Um, more brilliant things that we, yeah. that has been proposed or mentioned on the show. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it makes perfect sense, yeah. exactly what you're saying. And You're paying a tax on inflation, and I bet you 99% of the people don't realize that. Yep. Yep. I, I've exactly. never even thought about that before, but you're 100% right. And how to change that, Brandon? Good luck, dude, because that, that's that's all about fighting the entrenched interests in Washington. Oh, I that's know. about fighting the Democrats and the Republicans and all everybody in between and dealing with the chaos. And I mean, I, listen, maybe somebody listening to the podcast wants to take that as their mission. I mean, imagine we got 30, you know, 40,000 people listening to a podcast each week yep. here. Like imagine getting 30,000 letters to the IRS of of this is what we want to change. All we want is 45 days to six months. Like it doesn't affect your bottom line. You'll make more money in the long run. Because, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. I, I wonder out loud. So hopefully somebody can step up and lead that charge. <laughs> Do it, so, Brandon. It's I ain't doing good. it. I ain't doing it. <laughs> David's going to run that one. So <laughs> whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Take a second and imagine this. Immediate cash flow, above average rent, built-in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single-family rent-to-own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest-growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above market rent, so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. All right. So 1031 exchanges, very cool. And obviously, you know, we don't have time to get in real deep into them. But uh, what I wanted to go back on is the topic of subdivisions. We've never actually had somebody who's done subdivisions on the uh, podcast. I know Jay Scott mentioned he wants to get into that uh, back on, I don't know. I'm not sure what episode oh, I thought there was, but, was somebody. You know, we've had spec building, but we've had spec, but, but I don't know about like subdivisions, about right? Like, it, I, I mean, think somebody did a little bit, but we didn't get yeah. into it too much. I think yeah, somebody did too. I recall. Okay, yeah, yeah may, maybe, maybe I'm just forgetting, but yeah, it's, maybe we can, you know, we can talk on that. Like, what, what exactly is that? Like, what are you doing with subdivisions? Like, what does that look like? Well, let, let's start with what is a subdivision. Sure. How about Good. that? Good. Subdivision is where you take a piece of land that's uh, taxed as one parcel and you subdivide it into two or more parcels, and you sell each one of them individually, presumably for more money. 
so you can either sell the parcels or you can also do other things like develop each of these parcels, correct? Right. What I've been doing is I don't build houses in these subdivisions, but I go through the process of getting all the government approvals and the permits and all that and get it approved so that they're all into individual lots. I've done subdivisions as big as 100 acres, and um, I've done other subdivisions where we just divided one parcel into two properties. And I did one subdivision where I got approval to build 17 houses in my backyard. Nice. (laughs) Wow. Nice. So you've done both the just subdividing and sell each plot and the development side. You've done both of these, correct? Well, I guess I'm using the term development different than you are. I'm using it to, you actually went and physically built the houses no, with the crew. No, I did not. Okay. I, ne- I, I never built, uh, well, no, I, I did build a house. But uh, in general, I'm not building houses. Uh, I'm selling the lots to either builders or to end users. Okay. And we have protective covenants that say, what style of houses there's going to be, how big they're going to be. Gotcha. Uh, we did a subdivision that the minimum requirement was 3,000 square foot houses with three car attached garages. Yeah. Well, oh. you know, that's, that's uh, small. Yeah, little, <laughs> little houses. <laughs> okay, okay, so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking a plot of vacant land, I'm guessing, uh, ultimately, and we're cutting it up and, and getting the government to give us the green light to do things with. You're not building streets. You're not, you know, you're not setting up electrical uh, sewage and plumbing lines to these subdivisions. You're literally just going and carving up this land into X number of different lots and getting approval to do all the rest. Is that, is that right? In general, Yes. Uh, most of the land that I've done subdivision on has been land where there's not public water and public sewer. Okay. So we've had to, to do testing for septics, and we've just carved out land using existing road frontage. We've had some – the one that we did 100 acres on, there was about a mile of road frontage okay. on the property. It was on two sides of two roads and one side of another road. Gotcha. All right, so – I want an example because I, I'm fascinated by this whole thing. It's something that I've always thought about doing and I have no clue where to even begin. So say I buy an acre plot of land, there's a road frontage, you know, say there's, there's even hookups, you know, at least within distance. So I buy this one acre and I want to cut it up into, into two half acre lots. What do I do? The first thing you need to do is check the zoning for that area to see if half acre lots are permitted. In some zonings, one acre is the minimum lot size. And if you already have an acre, you can't subdivide it any further. So checking the zoning ordinance, and most of the municipalities uh, have that online that you can check. Or you can go to the municipal building and get a hard copy of what they're – in in this area, it's two publications. It's the zoning ordinance – and it's the subdivision ordinance, and those are generally two separate documents. Gotcha. So I get the green light. I look, and I find out that half acre is perfect. We're good to go. Now what do I do? You're probably going to need to employ a surveyor and an engineer to survey the property and put together a plan of what it would look like after it's approved. You submit that to the municipality. They review it. They have their engineer review it, make sure that it meets all of the ordinance requirements, and uh, they either, either give you a yes or a no and, and get it approved. Once they approve it, 
then the approved plan is recorded at the courthouse and you're able to sell those lots individually. Gotcha. So let's take a, a small example. And you know, I know you're not going to be able to give me exact numbers because it's going to cost different in different places. But take this hypothetical that we're talking about here with the acre land, forget how much I paid for the land, but what might all the engineering and surveying on something like that cost me a range? I, I, I don't even have a clue. Assuming that you have public water and public sewer availability, uh, just the engineering and the survey is going to be thousands of dollars. On a one-acre plot that you're subdividing into two parcels, five, $8,000, something like that maybe. Okay. Okay. That's great. That's not terrible. My follow-up question is, you've talked about doing this a few times. I wonder if you'd be willing to share with us, and you can say no, of course, what perhaps you bought a plot of land for, what kind of your costs were and what you ended up selling and profiting on? It runs the gamut. And um, sometimes the subdivision approval takes and I was uh, ask the length a lot of time, of time as well. Yeah. I usually figure, you know, if we're doing something more than just one or two lots, we figure into the equation maybe a year to get the subdivision approval. Okay. So you got a lot of holding costs. There's holding costs involved, and you can't do anything during that period of time. You know, you can't sell any of the lots You're tied because up, they're yeah. not created yet. And so you're going to have to pay taxes, and you know, you're going to have other holding costs, and plus you're going to have the engineering and surveying costs. And there is the possibility that when you go for your subdivision approval that you don't get approved. Right. That happens. Yep. Yep. But what do you do at that um, point? I mean, do you just sell the property as a big chunk and break even with it, hopefully? We try to accommodate the municipalities. No, you need their approval to do this. And by the way, one of my other roles is I'm on the planning commission in my town. Oh. So I sit on the other side of the table for everybody submitting subdivision and land development plans in my town. And I'm one of the commissioners that has to approve that and recommend the changes or recommend that it be approved as it's submitted. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you get some insight into the thought process, which is fascinating. And I know we don't have a ton of time on it, but I'd love if you'd be up for it to kind of maybe have one of us talk to you and do a kind of an interview on that, uh, just maybe for an article, or even if you'd be willing to write something yourself on kind of an, you know insight into that whole process, because I do think it's fascinating. The, uh, the one that I did in my backyard, I bought this house and it had about 150 feet of road frontage, and the house was like scooted over to one side. And the first time I saw it, I figured something could be done with the big side yard. I figured you could put another house in there. Well, it turns out there was another piece of land that somebody else owned that was behind it that was unbuildable that I ended up acquiring that, and I put the two properties together and did a subdivision plan and got it approved for uh, 17 new townhouses. So I knew going in, something could be done. I thought maybe you could build one house, ended (laughs) up 17 townhouses. No kidding. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's cool. And I figured that I essentially got that land for free. Yeah. So ultimately, and I asked and you half answered it, which is fine. I'm not going to press you on it. But ultimately, it can certainly be profitable to to turn over these properties or, or, or these new plots of land else uh, it wouldn't be worth the time, energy, and effort to uh, go through the rigmarole of getting engineers and waiting for politicians and commissioners and and dealing with all the headaches that come with it, correct? Right. And one of the things that happened in our area 
like through the 2000s is there were a lot of new plots created. So there's a lot of inventory out there of, of lots that are already created that people haven't been able to sell because of the economy. Gotcha. So there's a lot of inventory. So so there's certainly a high risk that would come with it in an area that may not be – that may be a little more stagnant than otherwise, right? Yeah, and the economy, you know, everybody knows how it's affected housing. Yep. The effect on vacant lots is even more drastic than it has been on housing. Yeah. There's less buyers for house for lots than there are for houses. For so, sure. So would you would you probably recommend that a new investor not get started with this kind of subdivision thing? It's difficult to do. I wouldn't say don't do it, but I'd say start on a small scale. Maybe do a subdivision for one or two lots. I wouldn't tackle a hundred acres to start as my first subdivision. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, what would be your favorite? I'm just in in general, maybe shifting gears a little bit here. What is your favorite real estate niche? Like of all the things that you do, you seem to do a lot. What's your favorite? Uh, I like tax sales a lot. Really? So like tax is that the same as tax liens that we talked with like Ankit uh, about back a few episodes ago, a while ago, but long time ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. But about about half the states are tax lien states, and about half the states are tax deed states, and. Uh, I've been going to tax deed sales, and when you go to the auction, you're actually getting the deed to the property. When you go to a tax lien sale, you're getting a lien against the property like a, a mortgage or a judgment would be. Okay. It's also difficult to do. There's a lot of little peculiarities. The laws are different in every state. It's difficult to do, and so since it's difficult to do, there's not a lot of competition. Yeah, that makes sense. Would you say that's how you're getting most of your deals are through things like tax sales or are you getting them? Are you doing direct mail or anything like that to, to get the stuff you're working on? I haven't done any direct mail in a long time. I did do some direct mail and uh, I did get good responses. Uh, I target out of state and out of county owners, uh, non-owner occupied uh, and I got some good responses on that. Uh, I'm looking at tax sales. I'm looking at sheriff sales. I'm looking at REOs. Only about 25% of my purchases come out of the multi-list. So 75% don't come out of the multi-list. Okay. Interesting. So I guess I, I, I want to, there's so many things I got like 50 more questions here that I want to ask you. And, and, we're, and we're running, running out, out of time. time which is yeah. Fun. So I'm trying to figure out where I want to go next. So we talked about finding leads. I guess, do you have any other good, why don't we, why don't we stand that a little bit longer? Do you have any other good techniques for finding deals? I mean, I know you're a broker. Do you have any other good marketing techniques or uh, advice for people listening that could, they can apply to get more deals? Like in the first two purchases I ever made, uh, those were word of mouth. I think, you know, if you're serious as a real estate investor, you should be telling everybody that you're interested in buying property. Yeah. Yep. And you should have business cards, and they should be quality business cards, not something you printed on your home printer. Right. Uh, my business cards are a thicker stock, and they're glossy. They're almost like playing cards in their consistency. And uh, I always have something on the back. You know, most people's business card, the back is blank. Why have a blank space there? I put my experience and what I'm looking for on the back of my card. So I'm filling up both the front and the back of my cards and I'll give my cards to everybody. 
That's that's actually a great idea. We yeah. we do something on the back of our bigger pockets cards where we we create spaces where people can actually take notes on us, and you make it matte where the front's glossy, so that you know pencil, pen, anything will work. And people tend to love that. But I really like your idea. I admittedly like to watch the shows. I, for, I forget what the show is where the, where the two guys drive around and they uh, they they they're junkers and they pick up stuff from people and uh, and sell pickers. it. The pickers, yeah, yeah, American pickers. And these guys show up with a list. They say, hey, this is what we're looking for. I don't know if you got anything. And I think that's awesome to put something like that on your card. This is what we buy. This is ex- It's not just we buy houses, the vague we buy houses, but maybe even put in some more detail exactly what you're looking for so that you can have an army of people helping you out. I say that the back of my business card is like my resume. And it says on there that I buy houses and I buy apartments and I buy land. And it tells a little bit more story about me rather than the front, which just has, you know, my contact information and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. That's a- so I think business cards are valuable. I think telling everybody that uh, you're in the business to buy uh, property. Uh, I bought two houses from a coworker who was being transferred across country. Um, the properties weren't listed for sale. There was no competition. I got you know, really good deals on them. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, last, last question for me before we head to the fire round. Uh, I'm just curious, do you have any just kind of, for people listening to the show who want to be like you, you know, in a few years, they want to have 800 deals, you know, but they're just starting out. How do they get there? I mean, what, well, what should they do? Do you have any final advice? Wait, wait a second before what? we ask that. David, Let's let's ask this. You've done 800 deals. It has not been in two years, three years, five years, 10 years. I mean, this has been over a period of time. This correct? has been a burning question of yours. Since I don't time. care how old you are. I'm just, you know, it's, it's, I ask because, you know, ultimately we're not trying to preach people to get rich here in, you know, overnight. This is long-term. This has been a long-term thing for you. You've been at this for a little while and, and, uh, you know, anyone listening can't expect to just jump in and do 800 deals uh, by tomorrow. That's, that's right. That's why I say. You know, I already told you I did uh, 46 deals last year. One year, while I was working at my full-time non-real estate job, I did uh, 74 deals in one year. And a wow. deal to you would be, a buy would be a deal, and, and a sell, sell would, would be, be another deal. deal. Right. Okay. Yes. So transactions, I would call that. Right. I was working full-time at my job and I was scheduled that I was working four 10-hour days. So I had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to work on real estate. And uh, so I bought a lot of real estate. I've bought about a property a month for the last 20 years. Wow. That's good. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's consistent. Let's just put it that way. Fantastic. Well, so I, and I've got one last question before the fire round and that is what's the biggest mistake you've ever made and what can listeners do different to, to avoid said mistake or similar um, mistakes? I wrote in the uh, Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rewind book that, you know, I, I bought some deals where I lost some money and some of it was considerable money. Yeah. Uh, obviously I wouldn't want to do those deals again. <laughs> and there were other deals where I made money where it wasn't worth the time or it wasn't worth the risk. So if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do 800 deals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd do a lot less. Well, and I know I said it was my last question, but this is how the show goes and we just <laughs> dig in on things that interest us. So you talk about risk. Maybe you could give an example of a deal that was a high risk deal, just as an example for folks listening. 
I bought a house at tax sale for $50 and that wiped out all the liens. There was no mortgages. Was or it in liens. Detroit? This wasn't in Detroit. Oh, man. <laughs> I haven't bought anything in Detroit yet. All right. Let us know I what you do. I haven't looked, but I haven't bought anything there either. It had a new roof on it, had new electrical service, and it was brick. But it needed, like everything else, it was boarded up. And the former owner had tore all the plaster and lath off the, the walls and got rid of and disposed of all that. And the roof had leaked before that, so there was a lot of damage to the floors all the way through the house. And they had cut out the rotted sections of the, the floors. Well, in the living room, there was a hole in the floor that was like eight feet by eight feet. It was a huge hole. Yeah. And all the windows had been busted up, so all the uh, windows were boarded over. And, of course, the electric wasn't turned on. So it was pitch black there even in the middle of the day. <laughs> so I had it advertised for sale, and I would tell people, do not go in that house. Well, people would take the boards off and go inside the house anyway. I had this great fear that somebody would fall through one of these holes and, like, break a leg or something. Right, right. It was totally not worth the risk. The upside was minimal. Uh, I sold it for $1,000. So I bought it for fifty and sold it for 1000 Oh, I made money. Yeah. It was a deal I would never do again. Right. Yep. The risk was too great. Well, but to, to that point, doesn't insurance kind of cover your backside on, on that kind of thing? I mean, you buy a policy and your risk, at least in terms of somebody falling and breaking their leg, drops? Well, I didn't have any insurance. I was self-insured. This was this was an early purchase. Gotcha. And it's easy to get liability like on vacant lots, but a property like this with so much hazard, it would probably cost a couple thousand dollars to get insurance. Okay, on so there it was, you go. It was so hazardous. Okay. Okay. So so that's that's ultimately you know a property where if you you know you're throwing the dice, you know if it's going to cost you more than you're probably going to make to insure the thing, and. You know, if you choose not to, you're taking a lot of chances that somebody doesn't hurt themselves. So that makes Absolutely. a lot of sense. Uh, somebody once said to me, well, isn't everything you buy a risk? And to a degree, it is a risk. Sure. But it's a calculated risk. Yeah. And in the case of this $50 house, the calculations didn't add up. It was the wrong property to buy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that. I think it kind of goes to like, um, that whole theory kind of goes to like the 80-20 Pareto's principle of, uh, I don't know, most likely in a person's, I, I wonder if this applies, but most likely, at least in my life, 80% of my, pro, like 20% of my deals have given me 80% of my income. So had I just focused on that 20% of deals that were awesome and skipped the 80% that didn't and focused on increasing the number of those good deals versus the, uh, anything, I think you're just far better off. So I mean, that's my four hour work week uh, mentality shining through my real estate, but yeah, I have I two deals, Brandon, where I sold the property for more than a million dollars, more than I paid for them. Wow. Wow. I have two of those. No well, problem. if I had just done those two deals. Yeah, you'd be fine. <laughs> I'd be fine. Yeah, you could go on vacation the rest of the time. So cool. Nice. Well, that's awesome. All right. Well, um, that's great. Uh, awesome interview. Let, let's go over to the fire round because, uh, yeah, we're going to fire a bunch of questions at you. So let's bring in, cue the music. It's time for the fire round. I guess that wasn't really music as much as it was a siren going off, but <laughs> same thing. All right. Uh, fire round. These questions, like I said, come straight from the forums. So we're going to throw them at you. Number one, what is the number one thing to consider 
when comping land deals? Somebody asked that question. In other words, determining value on land. It's very difficult because there's so many variables in land. One of the big variables I see is a perked or not perked, you know, whether it's suitable for a septic or not, and whether it's buildable or not. There's all kinds of environmental issues like wetlands and floodplains and, and all those kind of things that need to be considered in your valuation. So you need to make sure that you're comparing apples and apples and not comparing it to something that's different in some way. Great. Makes sense. Makes sense. Cool. All right. You know, if you're doing a lot in a subdivision, obviously the comps should be other lots in that same subdivision. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Number two, when buying at auction, what is the biggest thing to look out for? Auction fever, where you bid higher than you intended to bid. Uh, if you go to an auction, I go to lots of auctions. I go to sheriff sales, tax sales. I go to farm sales. Uh, I go to a lot of auctions. There's this auction fever where you get excited and people are bidding and there's a murmur in the crowd and you no, know, there's an excitement there at the auction. You need to set a limit before you go to the auction and don't go any higher than the auction, even if you don't get the property. Great advice. Yep. It's awesome. All right. Do you think it's better to have in-house contractors or independent contractors doing like repair work on rental properties? I don't have any employees in my rental business or my brokerage business. I don't have any employees, period. I don't like to have employees. The people that I use like for rental repairs are companies. You know, I have a plumbing company I call or an electric company I call or HVAC or I have a company I call to clean the gutters. I mean, I don't even clean the gutters. I had a bunch of extension ladders. I had a ladder that was like 40 foot long. I sold all my ladders this year because I'm not climbing on any roofs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if there needs to be a roof repair or if gutters need to be cleaned out, I'm calling somebody. I've been Let selling. I've been selling all my tools. Like I have a whole garage of tools. I've been selling them all just because I'm like, if I have them, I tend to do the work. And if I, that's right. Know, and if I don't have the tools, then I won't do the work. So, hey, yeah. I, I've got a follow up on, on that question, David. So you're completely outsourcing everything. And I get that from a, I don't have to deal with payroll. I don't, I have less headache perspective. But from a cost perspective, I'm, guessing you probably would be able to get everything that you get done done cheaper if you had in-house is or is that just not the case i think you'd you'd probably be able to get some things done cheaper but the contractors that i've been using typically i've been using them for a long time uh they give me really great service um i was just telling somebody recently we had three cases over the winter where people tenants had no heat on the weekend and um, in one case, I had the uh, furnace technician there within an hour of the tenant calling me and telling me that they didn't have heat and it was on a Saturday night. Yeah, that's great. The, the tenant was very, very grateful and surprised that I was able to get a technician there that quickly and have them have heat so quickly. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. My tenants skip town in the middle of the night. What's the first step in handling the situation? Sometimes it's hard to know whether they actually skipped town or went on vacation. Oh, uh, yeah. If I'm like positive that they skipped town, I might file for eviction. You know, they left a bunch of stuff, including like food in the refrigerator. It's hard to tell whether people really left or not. Uh, I've filed eviction sometimes on people that 
have already left and I suspected weren't coming back, but I couldn't prove it and I couldn't get in touch with them. You know, their cell phone didn't work anymore and I didn't have an address and all that kind of stuff. So if they left like next to nothing, I'm probably cleaning it out. If they left a whole bunch of stuff, including furniture and food in the refrigerator, I'm probably having to file eviction. Okay. Got it. All right. Good answer. Uh, my final question for the fire round. Uh, what are the top three things you look for when vetting a potential tenant? And I'm guessing you don't personally vet every tenant or do you, maybe you do, or do you have like, yeah, a I do. Okay. So what do you look for? I, uh, I do almost all my property management myself. Okay. Uh, I do have some properties that are like an hour away that I do have a property manager there. I'm looking for a sufficient income, you know, that their income should be like three times what the rent is. I'm looking for uh, longevity on the job. You know, they just didn't start their job last week. And I'm looking for some stability that they live someplace more than a couple weeks or they, they don't have five addresses for the last five years or something like that. I'm looking for people that are going to stay. I've had really long tenants. I have a current tenant that's been with me for 30 years. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. I also have a 20-year, a 16-year, a 14-year, a 12-year, and two 10-year tenants. That's hmm. awesome. Unbelievable. That's great, man. That's really that's Vacancy really is a killer. It yeah. is. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, wonderful. Great stuff. Great stuff. Why don't we move to the final segment of the show and get this wrapped up for everybody? This is... The Famous Four. All right, Famous Four. These questions we ask everyone. I know you've listened to our show, so you know what, what's coming. Number one, what is your favorite real estate book? I've read about 300 real estate books, so it's nice. hard for me to limit it to one. I like uh, William Nickerson's uh, How I Turned $1,000 Into uh, $5 million. Yeah. I also like uh, Landlording by Lee Robinson and... Um, Buy and Hold by David Schumacher. Cool. Awesome. Cool. That's great. That's great. What about business books? What's your uh, favorite business book? I like a lot of those too, but my favorite is A Millionaire Next Door. Okay. Just as an inspirational piece more than anything, yeah? I think it, it, it kind of opened my eyes in a, in a way that the millionaires aren't necessarily all the guys that are driving around in Bentleys. Yep. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Cool. I haven't actually read that one yet, but I've like skimmed it in the bookstore a couple times, but never actually read it. So someday. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, it, it was a good book. I, I read it a couple of years ago. So uh, good you can stuff. read. Good stuff. Uh, uh, you know what, man? Seriously, <laughs> I uh, God. just because I'm not sitting around reading books all day doesn't mean I don't read. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. David, what do you do for fun? What kind of hobbies do you have? I see stacks of books behind you. So clearly, I'm guessing reading is part of your fun. But what else do you do? I do a lot of reading. Um, like when we went away to Turks and Caicos, I take a book a day nice. to read. Wow. Voracious. Um, so I, I do a lot of reading. Family is very important. Spending time with the family. Uh, going on vacations. I like the beach a lot. Just relaxing, kicking back. That's basically what I'm doing for fun. There you go. Nice. That sounds nice. All right. My final question of the famous four. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who either give up, fail, or never get started? I think perseverance, a desire to stick it out, no, not quitting. Most of the people that started at the same time I did have 
quit the business for one reason or another. There's very few people that stick with it over the long term. People get into it, get tired, drop out. I belong to um, four different RIA groups in four different towns that I go to every month. You'll see a bunch of people come, particularly when there's been a guru caravan through town, and they'll come for a couple months, and then you never see them again. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, David, listen, really fascinating. I know that I'm sitting here kind of aggravated. I'm, I'm, I'm a little let down, not because you let <laughs> us down, but because we don't have time. And I literally have like 50 more questions that I want to ask you on all sorts of different subjects. But I know that I've got bigger pockets to turn to, and I know you're on there and you're offering great advice. So I'll defer over to BP. But to anybody who's listening, this is show 82 of the Bigger Pockets podcast, and you can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 82. And of course, if you have questions for, for David, you can ask him questions there in the show notes or on Bigger Pockets. Before I let you go, David, tell me where can people find out more information about you? Do you have a website or anything else uh, that you want to share? I do have a website. It's uh, centralpenlots.com. It's my uh, business website for the real estate brokerage company. I'm working on a new website for my book, How I Started With Nothing and Made $12 Million in Real Estate. The book's available on Amazon and eBay and several other places around the, the internet. Nice. And yeah. several people on Bigger Pockets have bought my book and have written some really nice reviews on Amazon. Oh, that's great. Cool. That's yeah, great. it's been on my list to read. I haven't read it yet, but it's been on my list all. So this is encouraging me. I'll pick it up and uh, check it out. Well, send me your address, both of you, and I'll send you a copy. <laughs> All right. The perks of the job. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Well, listen, Dave, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really do mean it, and we really do appreciate it. And, uh, of course, we'll, we'll see you around Bigger Pockets. It's been my pleasure and honor to be with both of you. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you. All right, everybody. That was David Krulak once again. Thank you to David for coming on board. That was uh, it was great. I certainly learned a lot of stuff. Um, I wanted to say, if people want to check out, I mentioned earlier, but make sure you check out his chapter and the whole book, that Real Estate Rewind that Bigger Pockets put out last year. It is awesome. So just go to biggerpockets.com slash rewind and that uh, short uh, code will get you right to the book. So biggerpockets.com slash rewind. You can download the free book and learn more from David that way and a bunch of other writers. So. Good stuff. Yeah. And you, you have to be a free member of Bigger Pockets to actually download you the do. book. You do. So, yeah, if you're not a member, sign up. It's free and then uh, download the book. Yeah. There you go. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for listening. Show 82. The show notes can be found at biggerpockets.com slash show 82. Uh, if you're not a member of the site, you now have another reason to join up for free, uh, get that free book. And uh, otherwise, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, G, everywhere else. On the social web, we're out there. We're making things happen and, and uh, we're sharing cool content and stuff like that through uh, various other channels. So hopefully you'll follow us there. Beyond that, we'll see you on Bigger Pockets. Thanks for listening. And if you have not yet checked out the previous 81 shows, I strongly encourage you to do so. We've got tons of amazing guests and hopefully you will take the opportunity to listen to all that we have to offer. So thanks so much. And that's it. I'm Josh Dorkin signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.